0: Scripture reading today from 1 Samuel 21, 1 uh, to 4 and 6, and then the New Testament reading, Mark 2:23, verse 3 to 6. Um, then David came to Nob, to Himalak the priest, and Himalak came to me, David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Himalak the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter by which I send you, and with which I have charged you, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, who do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there is no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for men, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they, may, they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grief at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel, with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Uh, this is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Luke. We are continuing our series in Mark, exploring the miracles of Mark and how these extraordinary moments of Jesus' ministry actually point to everyday grace for our daily lives. As we have gone on and talked about in our series, we have seen Jesus as the suffering servant, uh, the son of God who brings restoration for the world. And now, by this time, I hope that you are slowly beginning to see how Jesus' identity leads to the transformation of his people, his church, Uh, to grow in grace even while we are experiencing judgment and suffering and discouragement in our age today, that we come to Jesus as we are. Like the paralytic that we uh, discussed last week, that the arc of the Christian life is reflecting the compassion, the love, and the mercy of this Jesus. And so here we begin to see a pivot in the life of Jesus that Mark is presenting, starting at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So whereas last week, uh, people are curious about Jesus and his ministry, this is the point in Mark's gospel where there begins a slow decline in Jesus' popularity that culminates in his death. People, after, uh, after this narrative, people begin to question the validity of Jesus' ministry and seek to destroy him. And all sorts of conspiracy theories and misinformation and toxic polarity begin to cloud Jesus' life and, and eventually sends him to the cross. So just like in Mark's day where Christians were beginning to be judged and blamed for the burning of Rome, Jesus is experiencing the suffering that comes from how a distorted faith leads to legalism and a lack of grace, a distortion of what it means to find our rest in Jesus. So this is what this passage is all about today. How how do we find Sabbath rest in Christ? This is uh, important for us today to recognize as a church. In every age of the church, there has always existed a prevalent legalism, and every age of the church, religious orders, like the Pharisees, have often exhibited cruelty in the name of faithfulness. So Mark is trying to answer the question for us today is how do we truly understand God's law for us today in an age of misunderstanding, and how does the church pursue faithfulness and grace in the midst of the arrows of our enemies?" He does this with three things that we'll talk about today, about who Jesus is. One, Jesus is the Lord of the law. Uh, Two, Jesus is the Lord of grace. And three, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So let's dive in today. Uh, Let's examine how Jesus is the Lord of the law. And it begins on Sabbath. It all starts here with something so small, it seems so insignificant, and yet, It, like all things, it becomes overly blown. It becomes super dramatic. It starts with just a walk through a wheat field. You see, one of the religious orders of Jesus' day, known as the Pharisees, had very clearly defined rules on what they thought it meant to be faithful to God on the Sabbath day. It was called the 39 Malachat, or Mishnah. Uh, My guttural sounds aren't very good in Hebrew, so I apologize on that if I messed up the pronunciation on that. But it came with 39 well-defined rules on what you cannot do on the Sabbath. And so we're going to put those 39 rules up on the screen for you to to view here. Um, Let's see. Uh, Some of my favorites on this list include erasing. Which, according to the Orthodox Union of Jews, uh, means you cannot destroy any form of writing on the Sabbath day, which includes words or letters that are on food. So, if you open up a bag of Doritos, you have ripped up and erased words, right? And you have broken the Sabbath day. Um, uh, Another one is on this list, selecting which means you cannot separate unwanted portions of food by hand. If you have bones in your food, you cannot separate it on the Sabbath day. Um, Hence, gefilte fish, if any of you are familiar with that. Um, And also... Um, you cannot sort or file activities. So for all of you type A people, selecting is forbidden on the Sabbath day according to the 39, Nishnah. Another one which I like on here particularly is finishing, which means you cannot complete any projects. Mechanical, repairs, adjustments, you cannot even tune musical instruments. All right? That's what finishing would entail. So these Pharisees would, would went to every length to try and provide a precedent to answer every question on what activities could be allowed and what activities could not be allowed including specific laws and this is true you couldn't even repair a fallen roof if you dislocated your foot on the Sabbath day you could not restore it you had to wait till the very next day to do it. Every stone was unturned in terms of how you were supposed to rest. Now Lest we sort of kind of question these practices, we have to remember uh, that, first of all, that these are the practices of some Orthodox Jews today, including the Orthodox Union. Uh, And before I get too far ahead in my sermon, I I want to first make a commendation about this. Um, To their credit, they actually wish to take seriously what God's Word has to say regarding the Sabbath. Uh, They know their Old Testament laws far better than Christians do, and and they want to take the commands of God seriously. And in each one of these categories, they are actually trying to use biblical proof texts in the Old Testament or in the Jewish tradition to prove that, that these belong in here. So we have to ask ourselves the question, which violation were the disciples doing and committing? Well, they were doing what looked a lot like reaping. Uh, Exodus thirty-four twenty-one. If we going to have that on the screen, there is a very specific rule in Scripture on the Sabbath that you could not plow or harvest. And so they they were saying that you shall rest in plowing and harvest, and you shall rest. So they thought that the disciples were by plucking little heads of grain because they were hungry right, were actually following into this category of plowing and harvesting. And that put Jesus, the the rabbi of these disciples, his teachings into question. Sabbath breaking was a holy marker for the Jewish community. It was alongside circumcision, a designation over who was actually in the kingdom of God versus those who were not in the kingdom of God. So Jesus, at this point, with his disciples plucking heads of grain, they were like, we caught him, plowing and harvesting, right? Jesus is a lawbreaker. Jesus is not one of us. So is Jesus breaking the law and his disciples breaking God's word? Unfortunately, um, there are some who believe that Jesus somehow did not care uh, about the Old Testament law or that he was somehow above the Old Testament law as though God's law doesn't apply to Jesus in this situation. But here's the reality, and this is why Jesus is the Lord of the law. Jesus cares more about the law than the Pharisees did and knew better than they did. And Jesus knows Deuteronomy twenty-three, twenty-five. if we could have that on the screen, all right? If you go into your neighbor's standing ground, you may pluck the ears with your hand. And there was a very specific category that meant that this was not plowing or harvesting. Reaping isn't plucking and sickling as, and, and, I'm sorry, reaping is, isn't plucking, plucking. And these Pharisees went beyond the interpretation of the law to impose something on the disciples that God's word had never said. And not only that, but Jesus in this passage gives biblical precedent for what he is doing. In verse 25, um, where in 1 Samuel 21, which in the Old Testament reading of today, in the, in the time of Abathar, Abimelech's son, the high priest, uh, ate bread which was supposedly consecrated for the priest and given to King David. right? So here we see Jesus battling legalism. And as I said last week, legalism is not, as it is often defined, obeying the commands of God. Legalism is adding on to God's word in ways that creates rules that God did not say nor created. And one of the highlights of our uh, reformed tradition is a reckoning to try and reform every practice of the church back to the word of God and finding freedom and rest in the things that God commanded, not to try to create additional rules for how it plays itself out. Do you see here? The problem with the Pharisees is not that they cared about the law. The problem is that the Pharisees didn't care about the law enough to realize what they were committing, the very same sin that Eve did in the garden when she added rules where God did not add rules. Jesus being the Lord of the law reminds the Pharisees and us today He is the one who gives clarity on every aspect of the law itself. Jesus being the Lord of law means that we, lest we be too harsh on the Pharisees, we need to turn the attention to ourselves both in our personal upbringings and in the Christian church today to think about how have we carried and placed upon ourselves extra burdens that God is wishing to free us from today. Um, You know, one of the things that... um, my tradition in the Korean uh, church, I grew up in a Korean American immigrant church uh, here in Columbia, Maryland. Uh, one of the interesting rules that we had culturally was uh, you could not just bring any old dollar bill to church. Did anyone else grow up with this kind of tradition right? growing up? right? Okay, no? Okay, so let me explain. Let me explain. See, Luke, Luke is just shaking his head. Like, Luke, Luke knows what we're, what we're going through here, right? See, uh, you could not just bring... Even if you were a kid and your, your mom and dad give you a dollar bill, right, uh, you could not just bring a regular old dollar bill, right? It had to be a fresh one right from the bank, crisp, flat, completely, not even a single wrinkle or crease in there, right, because how dare you give a wrinkled dollar bill to the Lord, right? And so I remember there would be some Sundays where my mom would have to take out a hot iron, right, because the bank was closed, right, and so she would have to iron the dollar bill just so that it would remain perfectly crinkled and flat, right? Um, maybe that wasn't your growing uh, upbringing growing up. Maybe you were told things like, no this on the Sabbath day. No fun, no games, no whatever, no television. Or maybe you were told, you know, if you didn't sleep enough on Saturday night, you are a Sabbath breaker, right? How dare you not get enough sleep before Sabbath morning? And all of this is couched in language that might seem very pious. If you truly love God, then here are the things you must do to get ready for Sabbath day. Now we have to be extremely careful, church. There is no scriptural command for any of this. I, you know, I was very surprised as a young child looking in my Bible, I didn't find the hot iron over the, the dollar bill verse. I couldn't find it, right? But while many of these things are, are, are wise things, maybe things that, God has binded our conscience of, they are not binding for the law that we place on our hearts today. And rather than obedience or worship, Jesus reminding us that these things can actually go against the very things that the Sabbath was supposed to bring, to rest on him, to have him feed our souls, to have him fill us again. So yes, The law is there to remind us of our need for Jesus. The law is there to restrain sin. But this third use of the law that our Reformed tradition is talking about is that the law is there to know how we can delight in him, how to find rest in his commandments. And for some of us, including myself, uh, we can continue to burden ourselves with things that he did not command us to do. Some of us need to be reminded of that great phrase. Jesus didn't say that, right? Right? So stop binding our consciences to the law that isn't God's law. It will only bring about death. So, uh, just maybe a, a slight challenge for us here today. How did you come to the Sabbath this morning? What rules maybe are you fulfilling that Scripture isn't telling us that we need to fulfill? Maybe we can be like the disciples, delighting in the law of the Lord, feeding themselves. Maybe we can be like uh, the ones who realize that Jesus is there waiting to feed us. Because when you reorient your heart to see that Jesus is the Lord of the law, then you will begin to see him also as the Lord of grace in our second Sabbath story here in chapter 3. We see that Jesus has re-entered the synagogue. The Pharisees once again are there. By the way, what's interesting, not to worship the Lord in the synagogue, are they? What are they, what are they doing there? They're there to watch Jesus to see if they can trap him in their understanding of the law. Again here, we're reminded of what a legalistic heart will do to us. Rather than come to a place where we find ourselves resting and worshiping God, the center of our worship becomes our laws, ourselves, how we worship, making sure that we follow all the rules for worship that we've created for worship, and looking for rule breakers so that we can condemn them in the laws that we've created. If you want to know how to ruin a church real fast or come on a Sunday where church doesn't feel like release, it feels like a burden, then this is how we do church together, the way that the Pharisees did. Right? Searching for the lawbreakers, searching for people to condemn. And I want to stress, by the way, and state a very important difference right now here, the difference between devotion and zeal versus the legalism of the Pharisees in chapter 3. If the Lord has convicted you personally to consecrate yourself in a certain way before worship, maybe to give a certain percentage of your offering or worshiping physically in a certain way or or praying physically in a certain way, worship practices that point you to worship the Lord more devotedly, or maybe things in your cultural tradition that, that, that help you understand more about the love of God, as long as we can base those practices in God's word, then we are free to worship God in those ways, right? Because it's the idea that we've grounded these things in Scripture, right? The danger that I see in churches in pastors in members is when they try to bind other people's consciences in worship in a way that Scripture doesn't bind them. So the Pharisees come looking for lawbreakers, looking at Jesus, waiting to jump and pounce on him. It becomes a graceless, compassionless place to be. It becomes our brand of Christianity and not what the Lord has commanded the church to, to look like. The 19th century Irish Presbyterian minister, Thomas Withereau, uh wrote a series of books, uh, discussing worship. And he was, he was targeting his own Reformed tradition. And he, and he saw in it a spirit in Reformed Presbyterianism that was very proud of worshiping in a certain way that, that looked different than others. And he writes about what happens to those individuals who find their brand of Christianity better than all others. Here's this quote, if we could have it on the screen. After being subject to such an influence for a series of years, a man who once gave promise of becoming a genial and generous Christian, sinks down into a mere fault finder, a theological cynic, whose mind is sore, soured against every sect again, except his own, snarling at everything and pleased with nothing. This is the Pharisees. So, what is happening here in this synagogue? How is Jesus showing and demonstrating himself to be the Lord of grace? Uh, You see, uh, in the Mishnah and the Melchot, that that had very specific exceptions for when a person could actually break the Sabbath. And one of them talked about the necessity of the actions to save a person's life. That you could break the Sabbath if there was a work of necessity that was able to save an individual. But here's the thing. The man with a withered hand in the story that we just read would have not fallen into this very specific category. The man would live with uh, the public shame of having a withered hand in the synagogue, knowing that Jesus could heal him, but he knew, the withered man, knew that he could not come to Jesus on the Sabbath day. He would have seen himself as someone, though he wanted grace, could not receive it on the Sabbath, the day where, ironically, grace is most accessed. Every week, searching for help, but feeling as though the Pharisees and everyone around him in the synagogue looked at him. They saw his withered hand. They knew his pain, and they did nothing about it. So what does Jesus do? Jesus calls the withered man to himself, and he points the spirit of the law to the Pharisees in a real way knowing what's on the hearts of the Pharisees, challenges them about how the law should lead us to grace. Verse 4 of chapter 3, he asks them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What is their response? Silence. We don't have to wonder why the Pharisees are silent. Uh, They aren't silent because their hearts and minds are being changed. They aren't silent because they don't have an opinion. Uh, Scripture tells us they are silent because their hearts have become hardened. And here both the righteous anger and the grieving heart of Jesus comes out when confronted with an opportunity to show grace, when confronted with the chance to show compassion, to demonstrate the love of God, to repent of their legalism and their rulemaking and their devotion of their own making, their hearts turn against the very God that they were supposed to worship in the first place. That's what causes Jesus to be angry in the very first time in Mark's gospel. But in the same place of that anger lies an empathetic, grieving heart For the Pharisees. His anger leads to grief and grace, not condemnation. His anger leads to healing. While they would rather worship in their own fashion, Jesus' heart is to have his anger and his grief turn into life-giving grace. So here's what Jesus reminds us of here today, church. Grace will always have victory over legalism. Grace is true mercy. Legalism is false mercy. True grace leads to healing. True legalism leads to self-righteous condemnation. And this is what leads us to our last thought here today, and that Jesus is not just the Lord of the law. He is not just the Lord of grace, but Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he longs to extend rest to each and every single one of us here today. You know what the great irony of this text is in chapter 3? It comes in the fact that uh, the Pharisees thought that Jesus was breaking the law. But what is it that they plot to do to Jesus on the Sabbath day? They seek out his death. And in case you were wondering, murdering is not kosher, okay? Rather than knowing their Messiah... Rather than rejoicing in the healing of another, rather than resting in this miraculous work of God, they seek and plot his death. What is the greater irony of this, by the way? What does Jesus say in the first story that we hear about what the Sabbath is all about? He says that Sabbath was made for man as a gift from God. God. To remind them of God's finished work and His rulership. To remind them that they are not the God of worship, but Christ is. And to seek the worship of God on this Sabbath day as resting in His work. So when we say that man was not made for Sabbath, Jesus is reminding the Pharisees that the gift that God gave them of the day of rest is not to be twisted in such a way that in and of itself, Sabbath becomes another form of bondage. How can Christ say all this? What gives Christ the authority to say these things? Because Christ knows what perfect Sabbath looks like. He knows that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man in the Old Testament uh, has many different meanings and definitions, but one of the meanings and definitions of the Son of Man is this Messiah-like figure of Daniel 7.14. This one who will give dominion and the glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That's the promise of Daniel 7.14. This is what the Son of Man represented. And so when, when we look at this Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, we're referring to this idea that this one is the one who will bring total peace Amongst the world. This is reflecting the creation order. Do you ever wonder why the Lord, our God, God the Father, rested on the seventh day? Uh, It is not because God was tired and needed a nap. When we speak of the rest that God took on the seventh day, it was a rest that spoke of peace on every side. There was no more wars to fight. No more that needed to be created. No more striving. No more struggle. In other words, God's rest is not a rest of weariness. It's a rest in rulership. And Jesus was reminding the Pharisees that this son of man will be the one who wins dominion and whose glory is never ending. Sabbath at the end of the day is recognizing that every part of the kingdom of God has been won because Christ said it is finished so because he has won dominion and power over his sufferings and ours, because even though uh, we think that legalism has won the day, even when the Pharisees thought that legalism won the day when they crucified him on the cross, Sabbath is just the beginning of the eternal kingdom and eternal rest for all of his children. The cross represents rest, not condemnation. Because the resurrection of Christ on the third day demonstrates that this resurrected son of man cannot be defeated, that he cannot be destroyed. His people can endure through the strength he provides. This is the rest that God is offering each and every single one of you today. Place all of your legalism and throw it out. Place all your fears on him. Place all of your burdens on his shoulders. Place your withered hands. Know that Jesus is calling himself to you to be healed and restored. Church, um, I pray and long that this community at City of Hope, as as we begin this new season of life, of ministry together, that, that Sunday mornings will be a place where we can come to find the Lord of the Sabbath. Sunday wouldn't just be another place you feel burdened by the weight of the law, or legalism, I should say. This church wouldn't be a place where you feel you are under the watch of those waiting to pounce on you. Every word you say, or every brokenness you feel. We come to this place knowing that this place is a place of joy. A place of rejoicing a place where we, we see healed people around us. We see the grace of God working in every single person who comes here today. And we rejoice and delight in those things. Um, Tim Keller uh, famously once said, you know, the way that you can determine who a Pharisee is, he says, Pharisees are the ol- always the people who are saying, that's not funny. <laughs> What did he mean by that? He meant that often uh, we, we find the church to be a joyless place to be. Uh, and, 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 and he wants to rewrite what that looks like for because for those who have been transformed and changed by Christ, uh, laughter is medicine for the soul as the Proverbs say. That we have joy here in one another in seeing each other here this morning. Church, I pray that this place could be a place encouraged by the worship of the saints, by the prayers of the people, by the word of God reminding us where true peace is found, by these sacraments that remind us of the rest that we find in him. So we come reminding ourselves of the call of Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary laden, and Christ will give you rest. Let's pray together.